Previously on Space Rocket History. When I was a kid, there was no such word as astronaut. Every one of us I believe that we'd lose at least uh, one, possibly even more astronauts uh, during the, the Mercury program. The risks were incredibly high. You know, when we put John Glenn on board a rocket, he was flying the sixth Atlas, and two of the previous five had blown up. Godspeed, John Glenn. Six, five, Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 31 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Godspeed John Glenn, part 2. As Friendship 7 crossed Cape Canaveral at the start of its second orbit, a flight controller noticed that a sensor called Segment 51 that provided data on the spacecraft landing system was giving a strange reading. According to the reading, the heat shield and the landing bag were no longer locked in position. If this were the case, the heat shield was only being held against the spacecraft by the straps of the retro package. Mercury Control ordered all tracking sites to monitor Segment 51 closely and advised Glenn that the landing bag deploy switch should be in the off position. Glenn was not immediately aware of the problem, but he became suspicious when site after site asked him to make sure that the landing bag deploy switch was off. Meanwhile, Friendship 7 was crossing the Atlantic for the second time. Glenn was busy manually keeping the spacecraft attitude correct and also trying to accomplish as many of the flight plan tasks as he could. Crossing the Canary Islands, Glenn observed that the fireflies outside the spacecraft had no connection with gas from the reaction control jets. His suit temperature felt too warm also, but he didn't take time to adjust it. During his second pass over the Indian Ocean, Glenn found that the tracking ship was in heavy weather. The tracking station had planned to release balloons for a pilot observation experiment, but instead the ship fired star shell parachute flares as Friendship 7 passed overhead. Glenn was able to observe the flashes of lightning from storms in the area, but was not able to see the flares. As Glenn crossed the Indian Ocean, he once again tried to adjust the suit temperature. As he approached Womera, Australia, a single light came on warning him of excess cabin humidity. For the rest of the flight, Glenn had to carefully balance suit cooling against the cabin humidity. While he was over Australia, another warning light came on, indicating that the fuel supply for the automatic control system was down to 62%. Mercury Control recommended that Glenn let the spacecraft attitude drift to conserve fuel. This is how Glenn remembered it 50 years later. 
Well, I certainly want to make it a two-way trip and come back, of course, <laughs> but the automatic control system had, had a malfunction. That meant that, that uh, I was flying manually, I cut all the systems back on so that I was operating as well as the, the, the automatic systems uh, during re-entry. That used more fuel that way, but had just enough to, to do that. Finally, at 2 hours and 47 minutes into the flight, Glenn was told about the potential heat shield problem. By this time, he was over the Canton Islands. This is the radio exchange from Canton Island, Capcon. Capcon. Friendship 7, this is Canton. We also have no indication that your landing bag might be deployed. Over. Glenn. Roger, did someone report landing bag could be down? Over. Capcom. Negative. We had a request to monitor this and ask you if you heard any flapping when you had high capsule rates. Glenn. Negative. Well, I think they probably thought these particles I saw might have come from that, but there are thousands of these things, and they go out for, it looks like, miles in each direction from me, and they move by here so slowly. I saw them at the same spot on the first orbit. Over. At this point, Glenn believed that Mission Control was trying to explain the fireflies as debris from a premature landing bag deployment. There were no more problems for Friendship 7 during the remainder of the second orbit. Glenn continued to manually control the spacecraft attitude, not allowing it to drift too far out of alignment, but in doing so, he consumed more fuel than a functioning automatic system would have used. Fuel consumption was 6 pounds from the automatic tank and 11.8 pounds from the manual tank during the second orbit. This amounted to almost 30% of the total fuel supply. On Glenn's third orbit, the Indian Ocean tracking ship did not attempt to launch any objects for pilot observation experiments because the cloud coverage was still too thick. When Friendship 7 came across Australia for the third time, Glenn joked with Cooper at the Machia tracking station. Glenn asked Cooper to notify General Shoup, Commandant of the Marine Corps, that three orbits should meet the minimum monthly requirement of four hours flying time. He also asked to be certified as eligible for his regular flight pay. In a more serious matter, Mercury Control was still undecided on the course of action to take with the heat shield problem. Some controllers thought the retro pack should be jettisoned after retro fire, while other controllers thought the retro pack should remain attached, as added assurance that the heat shield would stay in place. This is how Flight Director Chris Kraft remembered the decision on leaving the retro packs attached. I was more concerned that we were going to cause damage to the heat shield by the, having the pack on there as much as I was worrying about it coming off. This is how Gene Krantz remembered it. We made a, a very risky decision to uh, re-enter with the retro rocket package attached because the retro rocket had straps that would hold the heat shield in place until the uh, aerodynamic pressures in re-entry would maintain it in that position. So that was a very close call. At 4 hours and 22 minutes after launch, Glenn was informed by Capcom in Hawaii about the Segment 51 reading on the ground. Hawaii said it was a likely an erroneous warning and probably nothing to worry about. This is the radio exchange. Capcom. Friendship 7. We have been reading an indication on the ground of Segment 51, which is landing bag deploy. 
We suspect this is an erroneous signal. However, CAPE would like you to check this by putting the landing bag switch in auto position and see if you get in the light. Do you concur with this? Over. Glenn. Okay, if that's what they recommend, we'll go ahead and try it. Are you ready for it now? Capcom. Yes, when you're ready. Glenn. Roger, negative in automatic position, did not get a light, and I'm back in off position now. Over. Capcom. Roger, that's fine. In this case, we'll go ahead and the reentry sequence will be normal. When Glenn passed over California, he got the order to keep his retro rockets attached during reentry. This gave him 20 minutes to contemplate the dangerous reentry he was facing before he entered the ionization blackout. This is the radio exchange with Wally Sherall. This is how Glenn remembered it. During re-entry then, instead of jettisoning that retro pack here uh, and getting it off so it had a clean heat shield for re-entry, we left that on so that the heat shield would be held in place until the aerodynamic force of re-entry uh, would tend to hold the heat shield in place. Now that made for an, an interesting, well the, the re-entry was going to be interesting anyway, Glenn was now preparing for re-entry. Retaining the retro package meant he would have to retract the periscope manually. He would also have to activate the .05G sequence by pushing the override switch. Friendship 7 neared the California coast. It had been 4 hours and 33 minutes since launch. Spacecraft was maneuvered into retro-fire attitude and the first retro rocket fired. Boy, feels like I'm going halfway back to Hawaii. Glenn radioed. The second and third retros fired at five-second intervals. The spacecraft attitude was steady during retrofire. Six minutes after retrofire, Glenn maneuvered the spacecraft into a 14-degree nose-up pitch attitude for re-entry. Friendship 7 lost altitude in its re-entry glide over the continental U.S. and headed toward splashdown in the Atlantic. The Texas tracking station told Glenn to retain the retro pack until the accelerometer read 1.5 G. Glenn reported as he crossed Cape Canaveral he had been controlling the spacecraft manually and would use the fly-by-wire mode as backup. Mercury Control then gave him the .05 G mark and he pressed the override button. About the same time, Glenn heard noises that sounded like small things brushing against the capsule. A strap from the retro pack broke partially loose and hung over the spacecraft window as it was consumed in the re-entry plasma stream. A 
spacecraft control system was working well, but the manual fuel supply was down to 15%. The peak of the re-entry deceleration was still to come. Glenn switched to fly-by-wire and the automatic tank supply. This combination had more available fuel. I could see chunks of that retro pack breaking up and coming back by the window. My condition is good, but that was a real fireball, boy. I had great chunks of that retro pack breaking off all the way through. Rocking quite a bit. I may still have some of that pack on. I can't damp it either. And I couldn't be absolutely certain then whether it was the uh, heat shield breaking up or the retro pack. And uh, obviously it was a retro packer, wouldn't be here today, but anyway, it was a... After passing the peak G region, the Friendship 7 began oscillating severely. Lynn could not control the ship manually. The spacecraft was oscillating past 10 degrees on both sides of the vertical zero degree point. I felt like a falling leaf, Glenn later said. He activated the auxiliary dampening system, and this helped stabilize the large yaw and roll rates. Fuel in the automatic tanks was getting low. Glenn wondered if the spacecraft would retain stability until it was low enough to deploy the drogue chute. The automatic fuel supply ran out at 1 minute and 51 seconds, and the manual fuel ran out at 51 seconds before drogue chute deployment. The oscillation resumed at 35,000 feet. Glenn decided to deploy the drogue chute manually to regain attitude stability. Just before he reached the switch, the drogue chute opened automatically at 28,000 feet, instead of the programmed 21,000 feet. The spacecraft regained stability and Glenn reported everything was in good shape. At 17,000 feet, the periscope opened. Glenn tried to look out the overhead window instead, but it was coated with so much smoke and film that he could see very little. The spacecraft continued to descend on the drogue chute. The antenna section jettisoned and the main chute deployed and opened to its full diameter. Mercury Control reminded Glenn to manually deploy the landing bag. He toggled the switch and the green light confirmation came on. A clunk could be heard as the heat shield and landing bag dropped into place four feet below the capsule. The heat chute is on green. Chute is out in reef condition at 10,800 feet and beautiful chute. Chute looks good. On O2 emergency and the chute looks very good. The rate of descent has gone to about 4.2 feet per second. The chute looks very good. My condition is good. It's a little hot in here, however. Over. Friendship 7 splashed down in the Atlantic 40 miles short of the planned landing zone. Retro fire calculations had not taken into account spacecraft weight loss due to use of onboard consumables. The USS NOAA, a destroyer codenamed Steelhead, had spotted the spacecraft when it was descending on its parachute. The destroyer was about six miles away when it radioed Glenn that it would reach him shortly. The Friendship 7 standing by for impact. Remain in capsule unless you have an overriding reason for getting out. Over. All right, your Friendship 7. Friendship 7 getting close, standing by. Here we go. Friendship 7 impact, rescue aids is manual. Friendship 7, uh, this is Steelhead, uh, holds you in the water. Uh, what is your condition, over? Uh, Roger, my condition okay. Does the capsule look like it's okay, over? 
One crewman cleared the spacecraft antenna and the other crewman attached a line to hoist Friendship 7 aboard. After being pulled from the water, the spacecraft bumped against the side of the destroyer. Once it was on deck, Glenn intended to leave the capsule through the upper hatch, but it was too hot in the spacecraft, so he decided to blow the side hatch instead. He told the ship's crew to stand clear and hit the hatch detonator plunger with the back of his hand. The plunger recoiled and slightly cut his knuckles through his glove. With a loud bang, the hatch was off. A smiling John Glenn got out of Friendship 7 and stood on the deck of the Noah, and his first words were, It was hot in there. A destroyer that came alongside and put up a, a cable down at Devitt and, and picked me up and set the spacecraft on, on the deck of the ship and I blew the side hatch and climbed out then. After the mission was over, the Segment 51 warning light problem was determined to be a faulty sensor, meaning that the heat shield and the landing bag were in fact secure during re-entry. After they got the spacecraft back and ran tests on it, they found that these two signals that went down to the ground that had indicated a loose heat shield were not, uh, they were faulty signals. John Glenn's orbital flight did not match the Russian Titov's 24 hours spent in space, but his mission put America solidly in the race and the country pulled out all the stops as they honored him. President Kennedy, who had welcomed Alan Shepard at the White House the previous May, now flew to Cape Canaveral to greet Glenn on his own ground. In Washington, Glenn addressed a joint session of Congress, an honor given to few heads of state. Then it was off to Manhattan, where four million people gathered to roar and cheer. His motorcade drove up Broadway through what looked like a late winter snowstorm, but was actually a deluge of paper flung in welcome from office windows. This was the mother of all ticker tape parades, with nearly 3,500 tons of the paper. This surpassed the previous record of 3,249 tons for General Douglas MacArthur in 1951. Glenn's fellow astronauts accompanied him along with their families and everyone stayed at the Waldorf Astoria in suites that each featured two lavish bedrooms and a luxurious living room. They returned to Broadway to see a current hit, which was how to succeed in business without really trying. It turned into a command performance as people in the audience gave up choice seats while the play's company delayed starting until Glenn's party arrived. He was feted at the United Nations. He met the Lord Mayor of Perth, Australia whose city had turned on its lights as Glenn orbited overhead, and who traveled to New York just to greet him briefly. Then it was back to Ohio for further welcoming from the people he knew best. His capsule was marked for the Smithsonian, for display with Lindenburg's Spirit of St. Louis. In Utah, a move got underway to add another N 
to the partially completed Glen Canyon Dam. Nikita Khrushchev sent greetings as did over 30 other heads of state. A message came from the artist Pablo Picasso, quote, I am as proud of him as if he were my brother, end quote. Through it all, Glenn showed a natural modesty and coolness. He took in stride the officials of Washington, who cheered when he said, quote, I still get a real hard-to-define feeling when the flag goes up, end quote. And he put up with the constant attention of Lyndon Johnson. Riding in motorcades, he flashed a winning grin and turned his head to the crowds, like a campaigning Kennedy. Pundits measured him for high political office. He would eventually go on to become a senator from Ohio. Here's Glenn reflecting on the celebrations 50 years later. We have celebrations in Washington, and there was a speech to a combined meeting of Congress, the Senate and House meeting together, and spoke to them and met with the president, and uh, then they had New York ticker tape parade that was a that was quite an experience. It was like a snowstorm of paper coming down. And somebody told me not long ago that that was the biggest ticker tape parade that there ever will be. And I said, no, nah, there's always going to be some bigger ticker tape parade. And they said, no, because uh, back then you still had ticker tape and you still had a lot of paper stuff that's not used in offices now. And uh, so now when they, they have a ticker tape parade in New York, they, uh, the maintenance people will gather up a bundle of, uh, of paper and take it up on the roof and toss it over. And the buildings in New York now are built so you can't open the windows even to throw things out. And plus there isn't the same kind of paper in the offices now that we're in a computer time as there were back then. So uh, there was some, they measured the tonnage of what the street cleaners pick up after something like that. So I don't know whether that set a record that will be there forever or not. I have no idea. On May 3, 1962, Germán Titov visited John Glenn in Washington, D.C. Here's the newsreel. In the nation's capital, the first families of space, America's Mr. and Mrs. John H. Glenn, Jr. and Russia's Mr. and Mrs. Germán S. Titov get off to a friendly start for their tour of the seat of government. Cosmonaut Titov's Tourist World starts at the beautiful Lincoln Memorial. Where on being informed by Glenn of the briefness of the immortal Gettysburg Address, the Russian observes, all good speeches are short. Seemingly oblivious to the crowds accompanying them everywhere, the two Earth orbiters continue their informal looking things over into the Capitol building, where the great dome of the edifice makes quite an impression. After which... The foursome left this lovely impression on the film of your newsreel camera. The Smithsonian Institution, housing many of the assemblies with which man first invaded the air, proves very intriguing to both spacemen. But they have a date at the White House, where it becomes a trio of history makers with President Kennedy expressing his admiration for Titov's 17-orbit flight around the Earth. Let the friendliness of this meeting prevail even unto the courts of state. The success of the Friendship 7 mission enabled NASA to accelerate further its efforts with Project Mercury.
During less than five years from Mercury's start to finish, more than two million people from government and industry pooled their skills and experience to produce and manage the nation's first six piloted space flights. Mercury flights demonstrated that people could survive in microgravity for over a day without deterioration of normal physiological functions. Mercury also set the stage for projects Gemini and Apollo during the 1960s and all later U.S. human spaceflight activities. Thus, the Mercury Atlas 6 mission of Friendship 7 was both a capstone event and the beginning of many more achievements in human spaceflight for NASA. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.